Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch, mainly art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth discussion of the films that I love. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. On this week's episode, I'm talking all about John Cassavetti's 1974 film, A Woman Under the Influence. This is a powerful and important and raw film. I'm specifically talking about Jenna Rollins's performance in it as Mabel Longetti, a woman who is struggling with mental illness. So I go into why I think Jenna gives one of the greatest performances of cinema history. I really think it's that landmark and that groundbreaking and I've really never seen anything like it that is so raw, that so dissolves the distance between the viewer and the character, the viewer and the film. And I'm going to talk about why I love her performance so much and why I think this film is so powerful. So I really hope you'll stick around and listen to the full episode. Her Head in Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the podcast on a monthly basis and also access rewards and extras. You can find more information at patreon.com slash herheadinfilms. At one level, you get a shout out on each episode. So I would like to give a shout out to my wonderful patrons Juan, JD, Iris, Teal, Vanessa, Spunden, Polina, Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, Michelle, and Lindsay. Thank you all for being patrons. The podcast is listener supported, and I definitely intend to keep it that way. If financial support is not an option for you, and I totally understand if it isn't, please consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes and or Stitcher, telling your friends and followers about Her Head and Films, or you can send me an encouraging message on social media. I'm on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter at Her Head and Films, and you can see all my social media accounts listed in the show notes of each episode. Before I go any further, I do want to read a few of the iTunes reviews that have been left recently. And if you leave a review on iTunes, I will share it on the podcast. I won't give your name, of course, but I do want to share them just to show my appreciation and just to give you an idea of what other people are saying about her head and films. So one listener writes, Caitlin is super knowledgeable about films and film history, but the best thing about her as our guide into the world of cinema is her curiosity and desire to continue to explore film frontiers she is less familiar with. I always find new films to watch and discover, and I'm never disappointed. Thank you so much for that review. Another listener wrote on iTunes, I'm so happy that I found this podcast. Excellent film selection full of gems that don't often get featured in film or nostalgia podcasts paired with Caitlin's lovely insight. It's so much more than just a recap or set of opinions, but rather like a familiar essay in podcast form. You feel like you're having tea with a dear friend who has similar tastes. Also, her voice is very relaxing. She would likely be a popular ASMRist. Well, thank you so much for that, for saying that about my voice. I don't really think of my voice as being comforting or anything because 
a lot of the podcasts you listen to, or that I listen to at least, you don't hear a lot of southern accents like I have. Even on the news or in the media, you just don't come across them often. So I guess I always have a little bit of an insecurity about my voice. So thank you so much for that. Another listener, and this is the final review that I'll read, wrote, Her Head in Films podcast is an absolute treasure. It's so refreshing to hear someone analyze films in a way that is accessible to everyone. Caitlin's empathy and vulnerability shine through in every episode. It feels like a privilege to listen to her share her thoughts and experiences. I love watching the film she will be discussing and then listening to the podcast. It feels like having a conversation with a close friend. Also, her voice is so comforting. I can listen to her talk about films all day. Wow, thank you all so much for this love and support and kind words. I'm just overwhelmed by it and I appreciate it so much. So if you leave an iTunes review, I'll definitely read it on the podcast. So let's talk about a woman under the influence. After a little short break, I'll dig into the film and I really can't wait to share my thoughts with all of you. First things first, I do have to tell you that I'm currently going through a really big move. I've been living in an apartment for a couple of years now, and I'm moving to a house that I'll be renting. And so everything is having to be packed up, and it is exhausting. It's difficult. This is actually the third move that I've been through in three years. It's insane, everything that's happened in my life the last few years. If you've listened to some of the previous episodes, um, I have an episode um, about House of Sand and Fog, and in that one, I talked more about some of the things that had happened in my life, like losing my house and having to move to different states, and it's been a time of upheaval for me, a time of destabilization and I've felt very affected by it I I don't feel like myself I don't feel rooted I don't feel um, connected to anything anymore I lived in the same town my entire life for 26 years until 2015 when I lost my house and my family and I moved out of state and then we moved to another state We moved to Rhode Island, and then from Rhode Island, we came back down to the south. Um, It's just been insane, everything that's happened. Living in different places, not having friends, not having family. Not that I had much of a connection to my family where I grew up in North Carolina. I don't live in North Carolina anymore, but I am in the southern United States now. And um, it's just been it's been really difficult and it's been painful to lose so much. I lost my house. I lost a lot of my possessions. And so with this move, I'm trying to hold on to as much as possible. I'm trying to hold on to what books I have left, to DVDs that I have saved. Things have become really sentimental for me. I mean, I don't want to go into all this right now, but I just wanted to let listeners know that this is happening. I'm going through a move. I'm still trying to keep the podcast going through this. 
but episodes might be delayed and just different things and um I'm hoping that once we're moved into the house that I will be able to have some kind of stability in my life for a little while and that I hope this move represents something good. I hope it represents the start of a better chapter in my life Um, and I hope that I will feel more rooted and more grounded and safer and more stable for a little while because all the moving has really affected me and losing things has affected me and it's just too much at times and I really hope that this move signals that my life is going in a better direction. That's all I can hope for. But I did want you to know, and I've talked a bit about it on the social media channels, because I just want people to know that episodes might be delayed. But I enjoy doing this podcast, and it's an outlet for me, and I don't want to not do it. I want to do it even though I'm going through this big move. So I wanted to talk about that for a minute. And I also wanted to say why I chose to talk about A Woman Under the Influence. This film is part of a series that I'm doing for the month of June right now. And for June, I wanted to talk about female performances that really knocked me out. And performances by women that I think are the greatest of all time, or that I consider the greatest for me personally. And so I came up with four films, you know, that starred four actresses who I thought were really giving the performances of a lifetime, the performances of their careers. The previous episode was about Isabel Hubert and Michael Haneke's film, The Piano Teacher, which came out in 2001. And so now I'm focusing on Jenna Rollins and her performance in A Woman Under the Influence, directed by John Cassavetes. And so this is just a film that I think is very powerful. It came out in 1974. It is raw and visceral, and I consider it definitely one of the greatest performances. I've not watched a lot of John Cassavetes. I've seen three of his films so far. I've seen Opening Night, which was my first Cassavetes, and I actually really love that film. And I'd love to talk about that film one day because I also think Jenna does a superb job in that film. And I would say it's probably my favorite Cassavetes, actually, over A Woman Under the Influence. But everyone chooses this one, but I think Opening Night is just astounding. And I think sometimes with a director who you end up falling in love with, often the first film by them that you see can become your favorite, or it can just become sentimental for you because it's the first time that you are exposed to their work. So even if they have other films that people think are much better or that are considered their greatest or their classic films, sometimes it's that first film that you watch by the director that hits you the hardest. That was for Michael Haneke. That was The Piano Teacher. That was my first Haneke film. And even though I've seen Amore and I've seen The White Ribbon and I still need to see more of his films, The Piano Teacher is the very powerful one for me. And for Cassavetes, Opening Night is that for me. Like, I have to talk about that film one day. 
but I do think that a woman under the influence showcases Jenna's acting in a very particular way that maybe opening night doesn't quite get to, that there is this performance in a woman under the influence is uh, astounding and you, it really haunts you, I think, after you watch it and what Jenna was able to do with this role. So I've seen Opening Night, A Woman Under the Influence, obviously, and Gloria, and all three star Jenna Rollins. And what's very interesting is that I actually only knew Jenna Rollins as an older woman. Um, it, it took me a while to realize that she had done films in the 70s, and the 80s with Cassavetes. When I was younger, I'm 28, I was born in 1989, Jenna Rollins for me was in Hope Floats and The Notebook. That's where I knew her from. That was what I was most familiar with when it came to Jenna. And that was, so I'd always seen her as like this woman in her 60s and 70s with her, you know, her beautiful white hair and just, you know, she's a beautiful woman and a, a beautiful actress. But I had never seen her when she was younger and the work she did with Cassavetes until I became more interested in art house cinema and cinema as an art form. And that was a process that started for me in 2011. So all of a sudden I find out that she did these films with John Cassavetes. Well, who is he? Well, he's the guy from Rosemary's Baby. That's how I knew him. And I think that's how a lot of people know John Cassavetes. But there's so much to this man. And he's a wonderful director. He was. So before I get into A Woman Under the Influence and talk about Jenna's performance specifically, that's the main thing I will be focusing on in my review. I wanted to talk a bit about Cassavetes and about Jenna and their life and, um, the way they approach their art forms and I'm not going to go really in depth and you can do your own research and there's all kinds of books about John Cassavetes and documentaries and I'm not able to go that deep in a week's time especially when I'm moving and and my time is dedicated to other things but I did want to talk a little bit about Cassavetes and why he's such an important director and why Jenna is um, one of our greatest actresses I think and I just adore her work so um, there is like this lost interview that came out a few years ago and Cassavetes did the interview in 1985 just a few years before he died and everything that I refer to will be linked to in the show notes of the episode. So just check those out if you want to see more of the interview. Independent Magazine reproduced the entire interview. And I learned a lot from this interview. And it's the one that I'm going to be taking from when I talk about Cassavetes. Now, I have my own thoughts and opinions about his work. But I did want to give you some more objective facts before I talk about how I feel about him. He was born in New York. His parents were Greek immigrants. Um, he was primarily known for a while as an actor. As I said, he did Rosemary's Baby and, and different films like that. But at some point, he really started to, he really did his acting to um, bankroll his films. And he is considered a big pioneer of independent American filmmaking because he starts acting like in the 50s and 60s and at that time there's more of a studio system and um 
He wanted to make films outside of the studio system. He wanted to have complete control over his work. But there was no way he could get funding for that. The studio wasn't going to fund his films. So he had to find ways to pay to make his own films. And he did that in a lot of different ways. Getting money from people. He would. Um, he took out mortgages on his home. Him and Jenna were in debt at times. He even went on a radio program trying to get funds for a film. Um, it's really fascinating to hear about how he got these films made, which I think is why it's even more important that they are readily available now. Many of them are on Filmstruck right now through the Criterion Collection that is on that website. So I'm really happy that his films are more uh, readily available, probably much more than when he was alive. From what I read, he preferred to have his films shown in like museums and places like that, where I think he felt they would be appreciated as cinema. And he often worked with a lot of the same actresses and actors. There's Ben Gazzara, Peter Falk. And it's crazy because, again, me being born in 1989... The only way, I mean, when I think of Peter Falk, I think of Columbo. That is the only way I knew him was as Columbo. And so it really shocked me when I've gone back and seen the work that he did before Columbo. And it was just a shock to me when I was younger, you know, to realize that he had done other work because I only knew him as that detective. And I love that show personally. And I, I love Peter Falk, but... It was just crazy later on to see him in films like Wings of Desire and A Woman Under the Influence because you're just so used to seeing this actor in other in another role. He often worked with Jenna, you know, most of his films star and revolve around Jenna Rollins. He gave her meaty material, deep, substantial material, much more than most actresses ever get. Um his favorite director was Frank Capra. He was a big admirer of his. He also liked Martin Scorsese. At that time, they were probably like contemporaries. And I think Scorsese is definitely a big fan of Cassavetes. Um, a lot of his films are about men and women and about the difficulties of relationships, the difficulties of communication, what it means to love another person. So love and relationships are a big part of his work from what I can tell. Now, Gloria is like a gang, sort of like a take on the gangster film a bit. But Jenna Rollins plays a really uh, fierce woman in that film. But And Opening Night is a bit more about an actress and about aging and and subjects like that. But A Woman Under the Influence is, is really about the difficulty of communicating, the difficulty of connection and his films are incredibly raw, incredible, incredibly visceral, and I think you either, I think you either like that or you don't. You either get it or you don't. He, I think he at times can be polarizing with the critics, that certain films have been really lauded and praised, and then other films not so much because his films are long. I would say they're difficult at times. These are. These are films with very intense emotions in them, and there's a rawness. And his first film, Shadows, was improvised. There was a great deal of improvisation, but his later films were not improvised. They were written by him. There was a script, 
um, Jenna Rollins in several interviews insists that there were scripts that people have this idea that all his films were improvised and they're not. Now, did he take into consideration what actors felt and what actors thought? Absolutely. He himself was an actor. He came from that background. He was an actor's director in a lot of ways that he cared about what they thought, cared about what they felt. And he tried to incorporate the way people really spoke. And that gives his films a great deal of realism and naturalism, I would say. It, it And I don't know if it's Jenna in particular. There's just something about her acting. You feel like you're not watching a movie. You feel like you feel like you're watching life. You feel like you're watching someone's life unfold. And that, I think, is the genius and the brilliance of Cassavetti's cinema. For me personally, you know, these are just my thoughts. Is that realism and that, that sense of there is no barrier between you and the film. You feel completely um, engulfed in this world that he's created and you feel like you're watching a slice of life, a moment of reality, or an hour or two of reality, as opposed to a film. And I think that's what he was so brilliant at. And I love this. Um, from that interview, he gave advice to other directors, and he said, quote, Say what you are, not what you would like to be or have to be. Just say what you are, and what you are is good enough, unquote. And I think you could apply that to other artists, not just a director, but a writer, you know, anybody who is a creative person. I think that's really great advice. He's such a deep man. If you if you read his interviews, if you watch his interviews, he's someone who had a lot of thoughts and feelings and emotions and there's just something really authentic about him and honest about him in his interviews. So and now I want to talk about Jenna Rollins because she's really my main focus in this episode. And um, she married John Cassavetes in 1954. They met at an acting academy and that is how they met each other. So they met each other through acting. And then eventually he started to to direct more than act. The, his real passion became became the directing um and she talks about in different interviews there's one with the guardian there's one with rogerebert.com there's one with interview magazine um and those will all be put um in the show notes and in the interview magazine it's very interesting she talks about how she admired betty davis that was her big idol um she actually quit college and went to New York City to become an actress. She started as a stage actress, and she met Cassavetes at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. And so that's how she started out. And, you know, she's she's been acting for decades, and so many decades. And she's created so many memorable roles. But I would say what she's most known for is her work from Cassavetes. Um... And you can tell that she really admires him. When she talks about him in interviews, you can tell that the two of them had a partnership together. That they were equals. 
and I've talked about this a bit on the podcast. I know I specifically talked about it when I was when I was exploring Michelangelo Antonioni's 1960 film La Ventura about Monica Vitti's role in some of his films that we tend to put all the attention on the director you know that the director has created all this and we forget how powerful the actors are how important the actors are and what they bring to the film and i argued that la ventura would not be the same without monica vitti that she may not have written it she may not have directed it but she is a partner in the film with antonioni because it would not be the same and red desert and laclis and la noche wouldn't be the same without Monica Vitti. I don't know how involved Monica was in the writing or the creation of those films. I just don't have that information. But it sounds to me like Cassavetes, his work would not be the same without Jenna Rollins. I don't want to call her a muse. I don't, I don't know. I sometimes think muse is this denigrating word or it's sort of an objectifying word of, it's passive there's a passivity about it of oh she's just there and then he creates art about her and she plays no role in it jenna rollins is fierce and active and and fully participates in these films and a woman under the influence started as a play and cassavetes took it to her and she said i can't play this every night this will kill me i will die from this kind of emotional intensity and so he came back and he turned it into a feature film and Jenna has said that this is her favorite role that playing Mabel in the film that's her character's name um, that that is her favorite role and she really loves it for the rogerebert.com interview in 2016 she said quote I love doing that movie I loved it because I loved working with Peter Falk I loved the mix of comedy in it that was sort of real comedy. The film was about a woman who was obsessed with the love of her husband for her husband, unquote. And she also said, quote, I also liked the fact that in that film, I was a little wacko, but my husband understood that and he loved me and it didn't bother him that I was as strange as I could be, unquote. And she hasn't acted a lot in the last few years. And in that interview, she sort of explained why of how the movie industry and the movie landscape has really changed. And it shifted more towards superhero films and comic book films. And I love what she said. She said, quote, I really like pictures about real people and their problems, how they solve it and get out of it, unquote. And I would argue that that's what Cassavetti's films are. They're about real people and their problems and about how they deal with those problems or maybe don't deal with those problems, right? And um, we really lost Cassavetes way too early. He died at age 59 in 1989, the year I was born. Um, He died of cirrhosis of the liver. And um, it's you just wonder... you know what he would have created he he was young only 59 and um he had three children with Jenna and all three of them I think have gone on to become directors and stuff um but the work that they created together is unlike anything in American cinema I would argue 
that we just don't have this kind of partnership and the roles that he created for Jenna and then the way she took that material and made it her own and embodied these characters and how they were totally dedicated to cinema. You know, he mortgaged his home. He went into debt. He asked people for money. He really did anything he could to make these films the way that he wanted to, you know, and he and he didn't make films about rich people or privileged people. He made films like about working class people, everyday people that are out there and what they're going through and their issues with their relationships. And I love that A Woman Under the Influence is about a woman struggling with mental illness. And I'll talk about all that in my main review. But um, I did just want to give you an idea of, of these two people and their partnership and what they created together just within a few decades together and they really were a beautiful partnership a beautiful marriage I wish they could have kept making films I wish he had not passed away in 1989 but I'm very grateful for the films that he did leave behind and 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 what they were able to do together and I'll talk about this throughout my review but the thing about Jenna is I consider her one of the greatest actresses and I don't know if she gets that kind of attention you know when people mention great actresses they think of Betty Davis or Katherine Hepburn or they think of Nicole Kidman and Kate Blanchett um I don't know if Jenna Rollins would be in someone's top five necessarily most people are going to name other people I think uh, Julianne Moore is one that comes to mind and uh who's considered really great and um but Jenna Rollins, for me, is very high up there, along with Isabel Hubert, along with the different women that I'll be talking about in June, and as part of this series that I consider these women to be great actresses, but I would say that Jenna sort of gets overlooked, and she's had such a varied career. She's done these Cassavetes films that are emotionally raw and hard-hitting, but then she's also done something like Hope Floats, which is precious to me. I love that film. So she's done like romantic comedies and she's also done television and, you know, TV movies. And she's done more sentimental and mainstream things like The Notebook, which is, you know, it's still a good film. I'll watch The Notebook if it's on. Sometimes you just got to have films where you sort of just enjoy them and shut off your brain for a little while. So she's a fascinating actress in that she's been working for decades and she's done a variety of roles. Roles where she's been so emotionally raw and open and then roles where she's maybe not been like that. But I think what she did in the Cassavetes film, especially A Woman Under the Influence, I think what she did was, I don't even know how to explain it and it'll be hard when I'm talking about A Woman Under the Influence and trying to articulate what she does as an actress. But it is like, like I said before, like there's no boundary between you and the movie. There is no, um, there's no screen. That's what she does is she dissolves the screen itself. And you feel like you are fully inhabiting the space and this woman's life and this woman's mind and this woman's life you feel like 
Jenna is this person that there is there is no way that these are two separate things you don't know where the character ends and she begins it is all fused together that she is this person in this film she cannot be anybody else you feel like you're seeing something in real time that you can reach out and touch it it's so real and authentic and bodied it's embodied it's and I talked about this with Isabel Huber too that the acting is in her body and and her soul and her skin and her cells and that's what we have with Jenna it's like the skin and the cells and they are this character and personally I've always wished I could be an actress like of any profession that exists I wish I could be an actress because I love this idea of inhabiting someone else of using your body and your voice to give life to another character and to another woman like that absolutely astonishes me and I think it comes from like my own desire to sort of escape myself and escape my body and I've always looked at actresses and always felt like that's what they were doing is that they were living someone else's life they were entering the body and mind and soul of another person and I always have been fascinated by that and wondered what that would feel like to just completely become this other person and I think that that's what Jenna Rollins does that that is the kind of actress that she is and I really wish she got more attention for it I wish she got the prestige that I think she deserves I mean I think in art house circles she certainly has that prestige because people know about her work with Cassavetes but in the mainstream world I don't know I don't know if she has that and I think she so deserves it and so yeah I love Jenna and that's why I'm excited to do this episode and why this episode is so important to me because I really want to dig in deep into her performance and why I think this film is just so powerful and astonishing and so now I'm going to talk about A Woman Under the Influence. So when I recorded the previous segment that you just heard, I did that a few days ago. So there's been a little bit of a gap between that segment and now this segment. And in that time, I have moved in to my house and into my new home. And we got like the really big stuff, you know, the furniture, the bed. So we're living in our house now but we're still making trips back to the apartment to get things we don't really know a lot of people who can help us move so we're really doing it on our own right now so I am so exhausted right now from the move and it's like it's not going to be over anytime soon because we still have to make all these trips back to get more stuff but um I still have I have a lot of my stuff here already like in my bedroom I have my books I have my film posters one of them is the hours that film and then another one is Agnes Varda's 1985 film Vagabond and I have a really um, great film poster of that up on my wall so I'm starting to feel more at home where I'm at 
but I'm definitely really tired right now. And it's been stressful, it's been difficult, but any of you who have moved know how hard it can be. But So over the next week or two and so on, I'm still going to be making more trips. I still have a lot more to do. And, um, but I, like I said before, I do want to continue the podcast and I want to keep the episodes coming as much as I can. There was a gap between the piano teacher, the previous episode and this episode, there's been about a one week gap. So I had to take a week off because of all this moving, but, um, hopefully you'll be patient with me and I'll get these episodes out as you know, quickly as I can, or as really the better word is consistently. I try to be as consistent as I can be, but I know all of you understand what it's like. I know you do, and I know you're not putting any kind of pressure on me. It's just I had this series, and I had these films that I wanted to talk about, and for me, I'm just not ready to give that up, and um, so also if you hear any kind of background noise, It really can't be helped. Where I live now, it's a little bit noisier in terms of traffic and things like that. But hopefully it won't come through the podcast episodes too much. And hopefully you won't hear it too much. But I did want to give you a little bit of a life update that I am settled or I'm trying to get settled into my new home. And um, I'm just so tired. I'm just, oh Lord, it's hard to really feel positive or upbeat or excited right now because I'm just so exhausted. All of us are just so tired from this move and having to do all of this. So it's really hard on your body. It really is. I love where we live. I love where we've moved. Um, but it's just exhausting to do it. So I finished A Woman Under the Influence last night and I wanted to go ahead and record my thoughts as quickly as possible and while it was still fresh. It was actually the second time that I've seen the film. I saw the film a few years ago, I think, and I got to thinking after I watched it that this is a film I probably won't watch again. That it is so intense and I think it really connects to what Jean to what Jenna sorry, Jenna what she said about how there's no way I could do this as a play. There's no way I could do this night after night after night. And she was obviously right. And as an audience, as a viewer of the film, it's not something that you want to watch over and over again, at least not for me. But I do want to talk about Jenna's performance and why it's so powerful. And watching it again, I saw things that I probably didn't see the first time. But um, it's something that occurred to me while I was watching it too was that some of Cassavetti's films, at least A Woman Under the Influence and possibly Opening Night to a certain extent, are grueling. There's something very grueling and A Woman Under the Influence is almost two and a half hours and you feel it. I had to take a few breaks. Like I watched an hour and then I had to take a, a breather from it because it was so intense and it's so real and raw and um, again, I was shocked that it wasn't improvised, that there was a script and that even with the script, the actors were able to make it feel natural and in the moment and improvised. And it's really stunning. I think Cassavetes was really smart in the actors that he worked with. And I think he knew 
that these were the actors who could bring his material to life. And they really make the film what it is. And Peter Falk and, and Jenna Rollins, they bring this film to life. And it would not be the same without them. And, but watching the film, I was like, I am not going to watch this for a third time. Like, I probably will not go back to this film ever again. So I'm glad I'm doing an episode about it. It was just so intense and raw. And it was, it's heavy. These are heavy things. You know, not only is this about a working class family, this is about mental illness. This is about a woman who is unraveling, a woman who is at times having a nervous breakdown and is almost losing her mind in front of you. She is a woman who is struggling in her life and struggling to exist in the world. But I think that's also why what makes the film so resonant and so relatable, I think, for some of us. And there's just so much to talk about in this film. I can't get to all of it, obviously. But there were certain things that I did want to focus on. And I think I want to focus on the film through certain scenes. And when I took notes, I wrote down certain scenes that I thought were really powerful and... um so that that's what I wanted to sort of focus on. But um, this is really about mental illness and Jenna's performance is the center of the film. And it's about this woman who is just coming apart in so many ways. It's about family dysfunction, right? Um, it's about this relationship too between Nick and Mabel Longetti. This is our couple. This is our married couple in the film. Nick is played by Peter Falk, and then um, Mabel is played by Jenna Rollins, and they have three children, and they live in this house, and their lives are very relatable in that way. And I love that Cassavetti's focused on a family that um, was just so real, I think, right? And I apologize if this episode sort of has weaker moments because I'm just so tired. But I really wanted to talk about this film. The central thing about this film for me is Jenna. And it's her performance and what she does with Mabel and how she brings this woman, Mabel Longetti, to life. And for me, I don't, I'm not like Mabel. I wouldn't say that I am as deep into mental illness I think as she is because I think she is is really struggling um with with things but I do have depression and I do have anxiety and I do struggle to exist in the world and to fit into the world and I really got that sense from Mabel that she doesn't know how to be normal quote-unquote normal right and whatever that means and I got to thinking about an episode I did a while back, a really while back, months and months ago, where I was talking about a cinema of the unruly woman. And I know I haven't really come back to it since then, but it is something that I think about often. And obviously I'm borrowing borrowing this idea from sort of Roxane Gay, right, where she talks about unruly bodies and unruly women. And I think it's sort of a term that might be associated with Roxanne. And I like her writing and I'm a fan of hers. But I got to thinking about how could this idea of unruliness be applied? 
How could this idea of unruliness be applied to cinema and to certain representations of women and certain kinds of women? And I got to sort of thinking about that in that episode, which I'll link to in the show notes. Um, I was talking about a a film called Dog Lady, which is about this woman who, um, I think it's set in Argentina, and she just lives in the woods with dogs, and it's it's about this woman who lives a very unconventional life and I got to thinking about how she's really unruly and how there's a lot of representations of unruly women in cinema. Barbara Loden's Wanda comes to mind. Agnes Varda's Vagabond comes to mind. As I said, I have the film poster on my wall. For me, an unruly woman is a woman who really lives outside of the of the lines, of the boundaries. She defies a lot of gender norms in vagabond the main character sort of is homeless and on the streets and goes from place to place and um with barbara loden's wanda the main character wanda she really has no place and she really struggles to be in the world and she's someone who is really marginalized and forgotten and silenced and i think you could say that mabel Mabel Longetti is definitely an unruly woman. She's not polite and prim and and she doesn't conform and she doesn't act the way a woman is supposed to act, right? Um, all prim and proper and, and she defies those gender norms and, and she overflows those and she's excessive and loud and strange and unusual and and mad you know she's this mad woman right um and i think a lot of women can relate to a character like mabel probably more than we'd like to admit and i just i think mabel is like one of us i feel like mabel is our inheritance this kind of woman this mad woman i guess you could say And I personally feel a great affinity and connection and love for women like this. I feel that I am a woman like this. The Virginia Woolf, the Sylvia Plaths, because I come from a more literary background. And I've loved literature since I was a child. So it's sort of ironic that I have a film podcast. But literature is where I am grounded and where I am. That's sort of my soul is writing and language and words. But my love of cinema has developed, and so I'm trying to fuse all of this together. But um, but it goes beyond just women writers. There's Zelda Fitzgerald. She was she was a writer, but she was also the wife of F. Scott Fitzgerald. She was considered mad. Um, there's Camille Claudel, who was an artist. So I feel like Mabel is one of them. She's she's a extension of those women and part of that sort of group. She's one of these, she's these women that we have to remember, that we have to sort of salvage from the gutters of history. You know, the women who get forgotten and silenced and ma- and um, overlooked. These mad women in, in history, these women who didn't fit in, couldn't make it. Some of them committed suicide. Some of them died terrible deaths. Some of Some of them lived very tragic lives because they just couldn't, they couldn't do it. They couldn't cope. And they really struggled. And I obviously relate to that a lot. And I saw Mabel Longetti as part of that lineage, I guess you could say. Um, and I'd like to talk more about these women, especially in cinema. These women that do not fit in. These women that feel like they're strange. 
the, these women who struggle with mental illness and struggle with anxiety and depression, these women who are reclusive, these women who are spinsters, these women who nobody cares about and everybody forgets and, and throws them away. You know, those are the women that I keep close to my heart. And those are the women that I really care about. And, um, these are the kind of women we don't know what to do with. We don't know how to handle them or comprehend them or what to make of them. And um, I think those are some of the most compelling women that I just think they're some of the most compelling women. <laughs> I really do, whether you read about them in books or watch them in films. And so I did want to bring up the unruly woman thing because I think that Mabel really fits in with that, <laughs> like really powerfully. Um, so, but the film starts and I'm not going to give like a play by play of the whole film or anything like that. Sometimes I do that. Sometimes I don't, but the film starts with, uh, Mabel, um, having her children go with her mom cause she wants to have a night with Nick and, and he gets called into work. He's at work. He thinks he's going to be able to get off and go home. But then there's this break in a water main or something like that. And they have to go out and they have to work all night. And so he's not able to come home and, and for them to be together. And, um, you know, we see Mabel and she is such a ball of sort of frenetic, feverish energy. And, Jenna, it's in the way she walks. It's the way it's in the way she talks to herself. And I already said earlier that, you know, the this film is so raw, you feel like you're not even watching a film. It's like you're watching a documentary. And I just want to reiterate that, especially with Jenna's performance, that when I saw it for the first time a few years ago, I thought like the screen has dissolved. There's nothing between us and Jenna when it comes to this performance, there is no separation. There is no distance. There is no screen. And I, I feel the same that there's, there's nothing between her and Mabel. It's just, she has completely become this person and become this woman. And, um, it's very interesting. Um, early in the film, Nick is really defending Mabel and he's talking to a coworker while he's at work. And he says that she's not crazy. She's just unusual, but he does admit that he doesn't know what she's capable of. He says that she could get hit by a car or she could burn down the, burn down the house. And I think this, this goes with what I was trying to say about her being this very unruly woman. She's this woman that people don't know what to make of her and they don't know how to handle her and they don't know what she's capable of. And it makes her kind of scary in that way that, you don't know that that was something that came through for me rewatching the film is how unpredictable Mabel is, how unpredictable her moods are and how unpredictable her actions are. And we see this at the very beginning of the film. He's not able to come home to be with her, even though she's got the kids over at her mom's house and she's going to do all this stuff for Nick so that they can be together. And since this is about a working class family, you know, things come up and he can't do anything about it. And he has to go fix that water break, you know, and he, there's just nothing he can do. And um, so instead of her just staying at home and, you know, doing whatever, she goes out to a bar and meets this random guy 
takes him back to the house and has sex with him and wakes up the next morning with him there and she's calling him Nick. So the thing about Mabel is that you can tell with this character that she herself cannot always distinguish between reality and her own delusions or her own, um, I mean, I guess delusion, I, I guess delusion would be the right word, but her own fantasies or her own world. There's always this sense that Mabel is inhabiting another world, <laughs> that she's not fully in our reality, in the human reality, the reality of her family and Nick and her three children, that she's always almost liminal in a way, or she's in between these different worlds, that she's in the world of her mind and then she's in the world with her, her physical, she's in the physical world, right? But then she's also in this, this mental world, this world of her inner life and her, her inner existence where she is somewhere else. And so she's always present, but absent at the same time. She's present, her body's there, but you can like look at her eyes or you can look at her different movements and tell that she's not there but at the but at the beginning of the film we can tell that nick is already in this conflict and this struggle about her that he knows she's different he knows people look at her differently and see her differently but he has he has a problem using the word crazy he doesn't uh, he doesn't want other people to see her that way i think that's natural that he wants to protect her and i think throughout the film we'll see that nick is a character is profoundly complicated and at times he can be scary and violent and abusive several times in this film he hits mabel and he attacks mabel and he yells at her and he yells at other people he's very aggressive um and violent at times and then there's other moments when he's very tender and he's very loving and so this is a film about two people who have a lot of demons and two people who are in constant uh, conflict with those demons, who are constantly wrestling, not just with each other, but within themselves. And they're always just, it's always this sense of a bomb about to go off, that there's a powder keg almost at all times. Everything is like a live wire. Everything is on the edge of the precipice. And everything could fall apart at any moment. And you can tell that Nick loves Mabel, but that he's also scared of her and that he is frustrated with her and that he doesn't know how to handle what she is going through. But at the same time, I think the film provides a representation of love too. I mean, I'm not defending what Nick does. I'm not defending his abuse or his violence at all. Um, but, and I don't even want to say but, I, I don't defend it at all. At the same time, this is a relationship in which I think these two people have very deep, profound, passionate feelings for each other. And they have three children and they want to make a life together. And I think that she thinks he is truly the only person who accepts her and understands her. And I think at times when she feels like she's losing that, 
when it seems like he's turning against her or he's just seeing her like everybody else does. Oh, crazy Mabel or whatever. That those are the moments that really wound her the most. When she feels like she's losing him, as Jenna said in that interview earlier, it's about this woman who's obsessed with the love of her husband. But I think that his love and their family ground her that that is all she has. All she has is Nick and these children. And they really are a huge part of her life. And she wants to be loved by them. And she wants to be accepted by them because she doesn't feel that in any other area of her life. But Nick is in a constant conflict with Mabel. They're in a conflict together. And that is what I think propels the film at times is that conflict. And there's love there and there's animosity there and there's but hey we we are all in families and we all know how difficult it can be I've talked about you know my family at times and so not every family is perfect and and it only makes sense some families honestly only make sense to the people who are in them because people on the outside may have a totally different view of your family and wonder what's going on and what is this but it works for those people who are in it you know not excusing the violence not excusing the abuse he does but this is the film that we're given and we have to look at these characters and he does love her and she does love him and yet there is a great deal of pain and fighting and wrestling between the two of them. And there's that conflict between the two of them. But back to when she meets that man, she goes into the bar and she's like singing to herself. She's drumming on the counter. So at all times, Mabel is just, she's always in that her own little world and yet she's so beautiful. Jenna is gorgeous, right? I mean, she is beautiful in this film. Um, and of course, that makes a difference, doesn't it? I mean, I think the tolerance level for some of this behavior is a certain level when you, when you are pretty, that when you are white and pretty, that I think people will put up with certain kinds of behavior like this that they may not put up with someone else. You know, when I was talking about, I had an episode about Kathleen Collins, who's, who was a, one of the first black women to direct a feature-length film. And I talked about the different stereotypes of black women, like Sapphire and Mammy and all kinds of different things. And there's the stereotype, stereotype of the mad black woman the who's angry and mad all the time. And there's this very negative connotation attached to that stereotype, right? And as I was watching Jen, I got to thinking, are there representations of black women with mental illness? Do we have representations of black women with depression, with anxiety, with madness? Um, I, I haven't seen enough things to really say. Um, but... I I just got I was just thinking about that I was like well Mabel is this white blonde pretty woman and I think that the reaction to her to her behavior is very different at the same time it's not accepted I mean she certainly encounters conflict and her family does not like what what she's doing especially her mother-in-law Nick's mother 
So it's not like she gets away with it or anything. But I did get to thinking about how when I talk about this cinema of the unruly woman, how I have a lot of examples of white women being allowed to be mad and crazy and depressed and things like that. But I don't have as many examples or representations of black women, of Native American women, Asian women, different kinds of women of color. So um, I think that's a big problem. Because I really get tired of this whole strong, strong female character trope or, or stereotype. Well, it's not really a stereotype, but this demand that uh, there be strong female characters, right? And powerful female characters. I'm much more compelled by a Wanda, from, like Barbara Loden's film, or a Mabel Longetti. I'm much more compelled by women who are complicated and flawed and struggling and find trying to find a way to cope trying to find a way to cope and live in the world than I am by a woman who has it all together and has it all figured out and is powerful and strong and and never has any doubts and never has any flaws and it's like I'm just much more compelled by those representations but um but I think women of color don't get to have that same complexity. Um, that There's been so many negative representations in cinema of women of color that I would think there's probably maybe a little bit more of a pressure to portray women of color as perfect angels, to, to try to counteract such toxic and damaging stereotypes throughout history. But then that can also take away their humanity, that we need to have more representations of all kinds of women all kinds of races and ethnicities and who get to be flawed, who get to be weak, who get to fall apart, who get to be crazy, who get to be depressed, you know, that when we talk about depression, when we talk about mental illness, we often only talk about it in relation to white people. We don't talk about the rates of depression and mental illness within the black community or different, um, you know, minority communities and that is a huge problem it only gets talked about in terms of white people and the representations in cinema are of white people having mental illness and Mabel Longetti is part of that it doesn't take away anything from her struggle but it is something that I wanted to bring up that it occurred to me as I was watching it that what if this was a black woman what if this was a Native American woman you know, what would the reaction to her behavior be like? How would it change? And um, it's just something that occurred to me that I wanted to bring up. But I think that's a real problem that we don't have more representations of that. And I think we certainly need them. We need all kinds of representations. But she meets the man at the bar. And I was really struck by the scene of the next morning when she's in bed. And... It's a very famous scene. It's in a lot of the posters for the film where her arms are up in the air and she's covered in a sheet and she just looks completely untethered and not connected to the world or to earth. She just looks like she could float away. She, it's almost like she's flailing or she's drowning to some extent, the way her arms are up, you know. She's not all there. I mean, that is the term that I guess you would use and I think that's what's hard for people to understand about mental illness is it's so interior. It's so hard to make un people understand 
what depression is like or and we're never told what exactly Mabel might have. We're not told that she might be manic depressive or she might be schizophrenic. I think what she has goes beyond just depression and anxiety, which is what I have. So I've never really experienced what Mabel has. I've never I've never felt like I wasn't here or like I was in some other place. I've always been very conscious and um conscious of where I am and I've never been to the point where I just could do the things that Mabel does out in public. You know, she makes sounds and she sings and she kind of lives with this sort of abandon in a way that she she's not inhibited that she doesn't she's not self-conscious she's not thinking about oh do I look crazy she just has the behavior that she has and um I've never gotten to that point but I've I've just always felt like there was something different about me and that it was very hard for me to be normal or to fit in or to exist in the world and it's just always been really hard for me but um so when I saw that scene of her in the bed, that was something that struck me is that she looks like she looks out of it in a lot of ways. And she just looks like she's in her own world. And it's like, how, how do you, how do you talk about mental illness? That's the hard part. You know, I'm recording this episode after several suicides that happened recently, um, that of Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain. And the Anthony Bourdain suicide has been particularly devastating for me because I adored him. I adored Anthony Bourdain. I had a huge crush on him, first of all. Uh, I thought he was gorgeous. And then, of course, I loved his mind and I loved his charisma. And he is the kind of man that I would absolutely be smitten with and fall in love with. Um, so charismatic, so intelligent, so um fierce in the way that he stood up for women especially Asia Argento his girlfriend who has been really integral to the Me Too movement and to coming out against Harvey Weinstein and so and his and his shows were so full of humanity and empathy and the way that he talked about other cultures and the way that and I think he is really a master class in how to engage with other cultures and in a way, I try to do that myself when I do these episodes. When I do a film that's from India, or I do a film that's from France, or just different places, or um, South Korea. I did a, a episode about Lee Chang Dong's poetry. So in the same way that he went around the world, you know, tasting the food of foods of different cultures, in some ways through cinema, I'm trying to travel through the world and explore different cultures and different lives and I think he was a master class on how to do that on how to have your heart open and how to be empathetic and and it's just shocking that he's dead I had no idea that he had depression or that he struggled with mental illness I didn't know that about him a lot of people didn't know it about Kate Spade either even though she had she was trying to get help I think so for the past several days, especially after Anthony Bourdain's suicide, I have been thinking about how we talk about depression and how hard it is and how people don't understand it. How they just want to give out these hotline numbers, right? Oh, call this hotline, call this hotline. And I'm not attacking hotlines. They absolutely save lives. And maybe if Anthony Bourdain had called one, he would be alive right now. But you've got to understand, if you yourself don't struggle with mental illness or depression, 
Depression is so much more than, I just need to talk to somebody. It's so much more than that. It's deeper. It's more complicated. What do you do when you've had this and felt this since you were a child? Because that's what I've had. And I've always been open about mental illness on the podcast. And I will continue to be open about it on the podcast because it's important for me to talk about it. But what do you do when from the age of five or six, you feel this inside yourself and you don't know how to explain it to people? And I think it's partly why I became a writer or why I started writing. I don't know if I consider myself a writer. I'm not that good. I'm not that good, really. Um, I started writing probably around 10, 11, 12. I started writing in a diary. And so I've written in a diary ever since. And writing is something that for me, I don't write stories. I, I don't do that. I don't write fiction. I write about my life. I write my feelings. I'm trying to speak the unspeakable. I'm trying to put all these things that are in my head and in my body into words. The things that I feel, the things that I sense, the things that are killing me to some extent, the intensity of my mind and, and my feelings. And Mental illness has been part of my life since I was a child. I remember crying myself to sleep when I was very young. I would just cry and cry and I didn't know why. And I didn't know why I was just felt so much despair. And I remember when I was in college, I went to college from 2010 to 2014. I would have terrible episodes where I would just be walking around campus sort of in a fog and I didn't, I, I remember, I distinctly remember like crossing a street one time and I think like a car was coming or I don't know, maybe it was like a close call or something like that. And I didn't care if the car hit me. It's not that I was suicidal. It's not that I wanted to die. I just didn't care. I didn't care if the car hit me. I didn't care. And I still go through periods like that where I just don't care. And I don't have any kind of motivation or any kind of um, ambition or any kind of like, I think depression takes that from you. It just, it takes your future. It takes this whole sense of, of what your life could be and the possibilities of your life. Like you're just trying to get through minute by minute or hour by hour. I mean, that's what depression does to you. It just takes away any kind of joy or happiness or investment in life you just don't understand why you're here or what you're doing or what the point of any of it is and you cannot feel any kind of sense of life um or you don't feel very alive and I did I have talked about how after my father died when I was 16 I was absolutely suicidal and thought about killing myself and then it got to the point where I just didn't care about myself and I didn't care what happened to me. And that has been a really hard, and that's something that's been throughout my life ever since I was a child. I just didn't care. Like I didn't keep up brushing my teeth a lot. Like I didn't care about my appearance. Sometimes I wouldn't wash my hair regularly. You, you get what I'm saying? And I think some of you who have depression relate to that where it's like, why take a shower? Why brush your teeth? Why take care of yourself? You feel a complete sense of what's the point? I, I don't feel any kind of worth as a person. Who am I? Nobody cares about me. You know, you feel like you're nothing. 
And it has taken me years and years, you know, I'm 28 years old now, where I actually feel like I want to try to take care of myself. <laughs> like, I wish I had felt this way, you know, a decade ago or more. I wish I had cared about myself and wanted to take care of myself and care for myself. Why did it take so long for me to care about myself? And that's what depression robs you of too. And I'm not here to put depression into words and into language because I think it's different for every person what it is. But for me, it has just robbed me of any kind of sense of, of purpose or meaning or just not understanding what life is and being so terrified all the time of everything. And that's the anxiety probably. <laughs> so I have really bad anxiety. But I think mental illness is different for every person. And so what got me started on this was thinking about how do you explain depression to people who don't have it, who don't understand how Anthony Bourdain could kill himself or how Kate Spade could kill herself, and then people who attack them because they had children and, and they left children behind. And, well, that stigmatizes it even more, doesn't it, you know? It's, it's hard to have depression, and I can't imagine what it's like for those more intense mental illnesses, like schizophrenia, where you might be hearing voices, you might be seeing things, or manic depression, where you just feel out of control of yourself at times. Um, but my I just have my own experience with depression and anxiety, and that is hard enough. You know, I can't imagine people who have been on multiple med medications and who have tried to get help or, or the situation that Mabel is in in this film where she goes, she's been in the hospital before it seems like and she's had to deal with doctors and it sounds like she's had electric shock therapy as well, electroshock therapy, which was really barbaric back in that time. Now they still do, uh, they still do it today, but they do it in a much more humane controlled way and they sort of know what they're doing but I would say back in the 1970s and earlier they it was very painful and very damaging to people and so Mabel apparently had that done as well so she is a woman who I don't even have the words for it but she's a woman that we need to look at and she's a character who needs to be seen and heard and listened to because even though this film was made in 1974 people are still just as ignorant and in the dark about mental illness and still just as judgmental about it as Mabel's mother-in-law and still you know oh they're just crazy you know and and attacking people who might have mental illness and so you know in light of Anthony Bourdain's suicide and Kate Spade's suicide I think we need more representations like this of to show about mental illness. And also mental illness has gotten really um, wrapped up with the gun control stuff and the mass shootings. This whole idea that people with mental illness are dangerous and violent and they're going to go out and kill people. When actually the statistics show that usually... Mental, mentally ill people, they're the ones who have violence done to them and that a very, very small percentage of them ever go on to do any kind of violence. It doesn't mean it never happens. But when you stigmatize, I mean, that's what gets me about America right now is that we are absolutely stigmatizing mental illness right now through, through attaching it to mass shooters and to gun violence. We're absolutely stigmatizing it through that. 
But then at the same time, people want to throw out hotlines and tell people to go get help. And and we also have tens of millions of people with no health insurance. So just making one call to a hotline is not going to change decades of a mental illness that you might have had if you don't have any kind of access to treatment, to medical care, to talk therapy, to psychotherapy, to medications. You know, I'm not against these hotlines, but I do think they simplify the issue and that it's really easy for people to throw those hotline numbers around instead of saying, well, what am I doing to help my friends that might have mental illness or depression? How am I helping them? Because sometimes part of the problem and what makes it worse is that you don't have anybody to talk to, that you are alone, that you feel like a burden, that you feel like you're nothing. I just said like a few minutes ago, I feel worthless and I felt really worthless when I was younger. I would have never called a hotline probably or reached out to anybody because I didn't think I was worth it and I didn't think I mattered. So this is complicated. Those hotlines are so important and they do save people, but that can't be the whole conversation. People want to have these conversations, but then they don't want to do anything. They don't want to have, you know, go and vote for universal health care so that everybody has access to help. They don't want to maybe, you know, think about what they could do for their friends who have mental illness. They don't want it. There's a lot of stuff that people don't want to think about that maybe this might be more complex than just telling a suicidal person to call a hotline, you know, that what are some other things that we need to do? And so I think Jenna Rollins does something very important with this film and Cassavetes did as well, which is showing a mentally ill person who is ordinary, who's like me and you, and she's raising her kids and she's taking care of her husband. But she happens to have this this thing that she deals with and that she struggles with. It doesn't make her less of a person. This is a you know this is an everyday person. And I got to thinking, you know, what makes a great performance, a great film performance? And I think it's different for everybody, right? It, it's it's and I don't know a lot about acting or the history of acting, but I think for me, it's sort of the witnessing of a possession in a way, the way the character possesses the actress and the way the actress brings that character to life. And, and I got to thinking, you know, maybe it's like this presence that we're searching for that Jenna dissolves and Jenna becomes absent and Mabel becomes present that Mabel possesses Jenna in some way. I don't know how it happens. It's some kind of strange black magic sort of alchemy, I think, that happens with acting. Like I said earlier, I wish I was an actress because it fascinates me, but I'm not pretty. so <laughs> I'm not some beautiful, captivating woman who could be an actress. Um, but I've always like wished I could be one because I just think that's so fascinating the way the character takes over the actress and I do think that there's some kind of possession that takes place right like you can't explain it and you you almost can't put it into words but I think you know when you're seeing it on the screen and I think we see it with Jenna it's just in everything it's in her eyes her body movements 
her hair even I remember I, I noticed this at the beginning of the film and throughout the film how Mabel's hair is always falling down it's like it's such a mess it's a beautiful mess though because Jenna has beautiful hair but it's like just always falling down and which is totally believable for this character you know her her I remember at one time she's wearing like socks with sandals, which I still think is sort of strange personally. I've never worn socks with sandals. And she just, she just has these, um, I don't even know how you describe the dresses that she wears. They're just these sort of big dresses that she throws on, which totally makes sense too. Cause I don't think Mabel is, is sitting there trying to figure out how to be fashionable or what to wear. She just throws stuff on. She throws a sweater on, goes to the bus stop to get her kids. So I, there was so much attention to detail too, that even like, um, even just something as simple as Mabel's hair or her clothes, that brings that character to life and makes her so real. And, um, just the way Jenna inhabits this character. And I did want to talk about a few scenes. Um, so after, after, um, Mabel has sex with that man. And then the next morning he's gone, he hightails it out of there because he just gets out. And then Nick shows up with all his friends and Mabel makes them spaghetti. And, um, she is so happy sitting there and watching those guys eat that spaghetti. Like, um, it just there there's these moments in the film that just break your heart and like bring tears to your eyes and that scene is like one of them and something that I loved about that scene too is that all of all of Nick's co-workers are so kind to her even though they don't necessarily understand her I would say this film also gives us a way to not just to look at mental illness but how to react to it that instead of his friends, and yes, his friends, I think, maybe say things at times, you know, and, you know, that scene where he says, oh, she's not crazy, you know, but when they're with Mabel and they're in her presence, they're actually very kind to her, even though they don't understand her, and um, that was something that really moved me, was that kindness, because not everybody that Mabel comes into contact with is as kind, you know, that some of them treat her like she's this crazy person and they don't treat her very well at all. And, um, but when she makes that spaghetti, um, she just feels so, uh, accomplished. It, it seemed to me like she just, um, she really felt a sense of accomplishment and that I think, I think Mabel's like a nurturing person in a lot of ways that she wants to give to other people. She wants to take care of other people. She wants them to feel comfortable and things like that. And that's something really beautiful about her. You know, again, it's, it's, we, it's so easy to represent a mentally ill person as just this crazy person, right? This person who is just one dimensional and they are just that mental illness. Mabel is not just her mental illness. You know, Mabel is a mother and a wife and she loves to dance and she loves to sing and she loves to throw, throw parties for her kids and she loves going and getting them at the, at the bus stop and, and buying balloons for them. And she loves cooking spaghetti for her husband's coworkers and, um, she loves to give, she loves to nurture, she loves to take care of other people 
Mabel is complex and that's what's so beautiful about the film is that she's not just this raving lunatic, right? It's not this one-dimensional reductive representation of a woman with a mental illness. It's this very warm, complicated um, portrayal, I think. And so many times during the film, you really do feel like you're watching a documentary. It is so raw. Like, it shocks me that it wasn't improvised. It really shocks me. Like, because it feels that way. And I think that's obviously a credit to Cassavetti's writing. And also the actors and how they were able to do that. Um, And there's this heartbreaking scene after the spaghetti. Because... He gets really upset with the way Mabel acts with one of the men and he yells at her and he tells her to um, sit her ass down and the whole mood in the room changes at that point. And so later after that, they're talking after the guys have left and she's just making these faces and she makes these noises throughout the film and, and these movements with her hand and Like I said, she's this very, she's full of energy and she's very frenetic in a lot of ways, always moving. And she thinks that she did something wrong and she's really upset about it. And he tells her, no, you haven't done anything wrong. And her face just lights up. It's like she's always, I think, looking for Nick's approval. And and I think she's sort of lost without him. I really think he's almost like her anchor in a lot of ways that she doesn't have anybody else, doesn't have anybody to trust. And she says such a heartbreaking thing in this scene that I thought was heartbreaking. She says, quote, how do you want me to be? I can be anything. What is, no, I, I did it wrong. Quote, how do you want me to be? I can be that. I can be anything, unquote. Her desperation comes through. Or she wants to fit in. She wants to be normal. She wants to please him. Um, And I love the moments of tenderness between them. Like this scene where he's saying, you didn't do anything wrong. And later on, um, they're lying in bed. Nick's employer calls and they want him to come in. And he's like, hell no. Hell no, I'm not going in. And she comes and she jumps on the bed with him. And she has her robe on. And... And they're just laying there together. And I love scenes like that personally. Like where you get that sense of intimacy um, between two people. And I did want to talk about a scene where... um, A few scenes where people are not so kind to Mabel. And they really are like a contrast, I think, to Nick's co-workers. As I said, they're so kind to her. And they engage with her and talk to her. And they don't act like she's just this you know weirdo right and so these other people don't act that way and and first of all one of them is Nick's mother her mother-in-law who's very vicious in the film I think um and then there's this other scene where she's waiting for her kids to get off the bus she's um she's waiting for the bus to come and and waiting for her kids and she wants to know the time, but she doesn't have a watch. And so she's asking these different women on the street. And these women look very uppity and very, um, very like, you know, upper class and um, elite and snooty and like they have money. 
and they won't give her the time. She comes up to them and she's like, can you give me the time? And they are, they do not want to even engage with her. And she starts to get really belligerent with these women and she verbally attacks them. She mocks them at one point. She mocks the way one of the women's walking and she is just fierce in this scene. I mean, she's just like, she's really a mad woman in this scene. Like she's just out there just yelling at them and screaming at them. And she is so mad. But then as soon as the bus arrives, she can see the bus in the distance. She is so joyous and elated. And you can tell how much Mabel loves her kids. And I tell you, when I saw that scene of her just so happy that that bus was, and she starts dancing and she's like, come on, you know, she can't wait for that bus to get there. And I was like, oh God, I think it probably reminds you of your own mom. You know, if you're, if you're watching it and you have good memories of your mom when you were a kid waiting for you at the bus stop and it brought so much to it, it just brought tears to my eyes how much she loves the these kids and she and later on they get home and she sits with them on the step and she talks about how they're the greatest thing she ever made and these kids just adore her and and she really relates to them and, and loves being around them and it really reminded me in that scene when she's with Nick or when she's with the children it reminded me of like how family is really this thing that we create where other people understand and accept us that's a part of family that I don't know if we talk about as much as we should that yes it's about love and support but it's also about this little universe that you create of people who get you, of people who get your craziness, of people who get your neurosis or your idiosyncrasies, um, right? Um, how strange and weird you are because, you know, I'm very different in my everyday life than I am on the podcast, you know, and, and my mom gets me. And so certain people just get you and that's what family can be. You know, it can be that for certain people, especially between a husband and a wife and children. It's like this little universe you create where these other people inside of it understand you and they accept you for who you are, for all your flaws. They see you at your worst. And I got the sense with this family, the Longettis, that this is unconditional love, that those, what is it, five of them, Mabel, Nick, and the three children, that it's a sense of unconditional love. Like I got that sense personally that this was a family that loves and cares about each other. And you can tell how much she adores those children and how much they mean to her. And so another scene where someone's not so kind to Mabel is um, when the kids have some friends that come over and the father of those kids is named Mr. Jensen. I think they that is his name. And Mabel has them over and she's created like this whole party for these kids. And she was really excited about it. And um, again, we see this part of Mabel that is so alive and electric and captivating where when it comes to her kids, she is so happy and excited and present and devoted. And I love that part of Mabel. And, and we see all these different sides of her and she just loves, she loves being with her children and this Mr. Jensen is not very nice at all. He's very uncomfortable around Mabel. And he says so. And he says that he's worried to leave the children with her. And so we see in, in these two instances when she's trying to get the time from those women on the street 
and then from this Mr. Jensen how people treat you differently if they know that you are mentally ill, if they know that you have manic depression or or some other mental illness that um, you can be judged for it, you can be treated differently, you can be invalidated because of it. He won't leave his children with her. And I think that says a lot. And, um, yeah, it's just, um, it's a very, uh, it's a sad scene in that way. But it's also one of the most iconic scenes of the film. Because this is when she does the dying swan. Or she has, the Swan Lake is playing. And she loves Swan Lake. And, um... She has the kids do the dying swan um, from Swan Lake for Mr. Jensen. And then a little while later, she comes outside and she's just, I think she's humming the music to herself or something. And she, and Mr. Jensen is right there and she just starts dancing. She's got her arms in the air and it's this woman who, yeah, from the outside, she looks completely crazy, right? You know, Mr. Jensen must think this woman is mad. This woman is a lunatic. But then there's this other part of you that's like, oh my God, she's gorgeous. Like she's, she's so alive. She, I mean, you think about when you were a kid and you would just dance if you wanted to dance. You would just do whatever you wanted to do. There's like this abandon about her. And there is something innocent about her in in that scene for me where she's just dancing because she wants to dance. And why, why do we look down on that? Like why is that scene is so terrible that you just do something sort of odd or, or unusual? You know, conformity in our culture is so powerful everybody's supposed to conform and be like everybody else and here's Mabel who is who challenges that she's unruly she's um she won't fit into those boxes she won't conform she's gonna dance she's gonna hum she's gonna sing she's gonna make her her sounds and do her arms and but there's something sort of so alive about her and electric about her and even though you know maybe she's not all there in that moment, but there's just something very liberating about her too, that if she wants to dance, she just dances. And I think there's something really beautiful about it that maybe we don't talk enough about that either when it comes to people who are mentally ill, that um, the gifts that they have to give and the way that they see the world might be really um, enriching and unique and important and instead of, you know, trying to fix people, you know, to, to say that people are broken and they need to be fixed, how could we reconceptualize it? How could we say, well, maybe these people have unique gifts and unique ways of seeing the world and unique things to offer. Um, I'm not saying we should ignore depression. You know, depression can be dangerous. Depression can lead to suicide and, and death and, and all of that. I'm not saying to completely ignore these very real issues that people live with. And if you're hearing voices or you're seeing things that are not there, but I do think that we could look at people with mental illness with more humanity and in more, in a more empathetic and humane way um, than just seeing them as broken or seeing them as something that needs to be fixed or something strange or negative or bad. I mean, with Mabel, there's just so much beauty there. 
You know, this is a woman who is so generous and warm and giving and kind. And so what? She wants to dance to Swan Lake. You know, let her have it, you know. But she's also struggling to fit into the world. And she's struggling. Um, you know, I personally feel like depression is not 100% biological. And most of the, uh, you know, the doctors and, and the people will tell you that. That it's not nature versus nurture. That it's often both. So you may be born with a predisposition to depression, but hey, if things go good in your life and nothing traumatic happens to you, you might do really well. But say you're born with a predisposition and then you lose somebody really early or you go through something really traumatic and it sort of activates it and triggers it. And that's what happened with me. You know, I had depression and anxiety since I was a child. It was always there. I was able to cope with it. It still ruined my life in a lot of ways. And it still made it really hard for me to connect to people and to survive and to exist in the world. Because I always felt, I always felt really intense. You know, I always just felt really different because I was very serious as a child. I was very precocious. I was like interested in art and and literature and I was reading Virginia Woolf when I was a teenager and Sylvia Plath and I was reading Holocaust memoirs when I was like 10 or 11 and watching foreign films and you know I was just I was like an adult even when I was a child and I used to just you know I felt a lot of despair as a child too and I would worry about a lot of things and I had really bad social anxiety that made it hard for me to connect with people and to be around people and I still do you know, none of this has gone away. But when my father died when I was 16, and, and this happened in 2006, it made it worse. It made it much, much worse to the point where I got agoraphobic. I couldn't leave my house. Um, my depression got worse. I felt suicidal. So I've been through a lot the past 12 years. And it's been really hard and really difficult. And so I often think about who would I be? What would my life be like if I hadn't had depression? But at the same time, I know that it's made me who I am. You know, that maybe I wouldn't be as empathetic for other people as I am. And maybe I wouldn't see the world the way I do. Maybe I wouldn't have the level of humanity that I feel like I have you know, and I, I'm curious about other people. I'm curious about other cultures and curious about the world. And, and I care about things. And maybe if I'd had a different life, maybe I wouldn't be that way. Maybe I'd be really self-absorbed and shallow and I wouldn't care. So I, there's no point in asking those questions, right? Oh, what if, you know, what if? I can't help it, though, at times because depression is really difficult to have and to deal with. But it has made me who I am for better or worse. Um, so I do think that Mabel, obviously, she does have a mental illness. But there could have been things in her life that made it worse. Or there could have been, you know, just living in the world when you have a mental illness can be very difficult. And it can exacerbate it. You know, you can feel so alone and isolated and stigmatized and marginalized and um, I think Mabel has some of that for sure. You know, that she wants to fit this box that Nick is in. She wants to be a good wife and be a good mother and, and do everything that's expected of her. And maybe she can't fit that box. 
You know, maybe maybe that box shouldn't even exist, right? You know, um, but she's doing the best that she can. And I think the Swan Lake scene and her doing the dying swan or whatever, I think I thought it was just really beautiful. And it's really striking when you watch it. Um, like here is this woman almost in a tailspin. I mean, she's almost like losing her mind in front of you, especially later on when the doctor comes in. And um, and he does call the doctor. And later on, the doctor shows up and and she says, and she's talking to Nick after he brings the doctor in. And she says, quote, I always understood you and you always understood me. And that's just the way it was. Unquote. And I could be paraphrasing. I don't know if I wrote it exactly the way it is. Um, she says, we're together. And he says, I don't know who you are. Because she's starting to unravel. She's starting to have like a nervous breakdown. And, um her face when he says that if i'm remembering correctly is just heartbreaking that this is the one person that she thinks understands her and he doesn't understand her at times and just the pain of that the pain of the person that you love and that you feel connected to not really understanding you the way that you would like them to do um it's just terrible And the scene when the doctor does arrive, it's like this powder keg sort of scene. It's insane at times. You can tell that she's terrified of being committed, that she doesn't want to go back to the hospital. And I think we also have to keep in mind the way those hospitals were run back then and how scary it must have been that mental institutions or asylums were not exactly um, the greatest places for people and that they could be traumatic and they could be um, really painful violent places and so she is very resistant to leaving the family to being committed and this is also the scene where we see you know Nick's mom in full force I mean this woman is unreal she's very vicious towards Mabel no sense of compassion empathy understanding and unfortunately, these are the interactions that really define Mabel's life. That really that spaghetti scene at the beginning of the film where his co-workers are really kind and nice to her, I thought. Um, and engaging with her like she's a person, you know, worthy of dignity and respect. The rest of the film, so many of her interactions, whether it's the women on the street when she's asking for the time, or Mr. Jensen, or Nick's mom, um it's it's more negative interactions of people treating her like she's a wacko that she's the crazy lady and um i mean i would imagine that would take a toll on you as well to always have these people treating you like you're weird and different and that there's something wrong with her um and and the mother-in-law nick's mom calls her crazy she yells at Mabel and says that Mabel doesn't take care of Nick and she doesn't take care of the kids, that she's empty inside. I mean, this woman is a piece of work. And it's it's hard to watch. And throughout that scene, Mabel is really losing her mind in front of us. She shakes and twitches and flings her arms out and rolls her eyes in the back of her head and 
yells and screams and she tries to ward off the doctor like makes a cross with her fingers it's a very famous scene really um almost like he's like a a witch doctor he's like something that she can ward off right um but she can't she's really i mean the way she must feel and they and and it's and i'm not saying there's a good and bad side necessarily again we don't have a way of talking about mental illness in this country we don't have a way of coping with it you know people do the best that they can um there's an interesting documentary on hbo that i saw recently called a dangerous son i think that's the title of it and it's about um it's about parents specifically mothers who have sons who are showing violent tendencies they're sort of like adam lanza's in the making to a certain extent and it features a woman that wrote this really famous blog post after the um, shooting at sandy hook where she said i am adam lanza's mother and she talked about how she had a son with behavioral issues who was violent and she didn't know what to do and it's a actually a really good documentary because it shows the limited options for people say people who are on medicaid how it's really hard to get these kids help when they need it it's hard to get them into programs that could really help them and, and help their mental illness or their the mental issues that they're having um not everybody has the money and the resources obviously and it's really a film i think that shows how broken our mental health system is and it also shows how we just don't know how to deal with it we don't know how to deal with a person who is acting this way and i wouldn't say maple's necessarily violent she doesn't really show any kind of violence throughout the film um so i'm not sure what you would do say if you had someone or if you had a child who was violent i don't know what you would do i'm not here to judge people at all you know we all have the resources that we have and do the best that we can you know but um i'm not saying nick was bad for committing her putting her in the hospital he's trying to take care of his kids he doesn't know what's happening to her and what what else can he do at that time in 1974 what are the options that nick really has he thinks he's doing the right thing he thinks it's for the best for mabel because he's been told that it is you know by the medical establishment or by different people and that's what he's going off of so often when when these families make these decisions i have nothing but empathy for them and and compassion and i think we should because you do not know what you would do in that situation it doesn't mean that was the best thing for mabel it doesn't mean that it helped mabel at all because you can tell that she's really scared about it and that it's been a traumatic experience for her to be in the hospital but at the same time nick doesn't know what else to do and he you can tell he just doesn't know and our culture and our health our mental health system doesn't give him a lot of options and it doesn't give people many options now that's what's shocking i mean 1974 i mean my lord we're decades down the road and i don't think we have any we don't have any better discussion about mental illness and we don't have a better mental health system to help us to help people who have these issues or might have a family member with these issues um i don't think much has changed really i really don't and that that makes me sad 
Um, but she does get to get committed. She doesn't want to. She's really terrified of it. And six months go by and we see Nick taking care of the kids and, and, um, Mabel comes back home and this is like the last scene really it's the last scene I'll talk about and you can tell that she's trying to keep it together she's trying to I I don't love to use this phrase like Stepford wife like she's trying to pretend you can tell that she's pretending she wants and I can't imagine the pressure that Mabel must feel when she has to come back and everybody's going to expect her to be cured and to be okay because that's what people think. Well, if you go on a medication, you should automatically be better. And if you come out of the, um, you know, the mental health place the where you've been for months, well, you should be cured. And the thing that I think people have a hard time struggling with is like, you know, if you break a bone, then it mends and you're okay again. But with mental illness, there really is not a cure there, there's not a cure. There's ways to manage it and try to cope with it and deal with it. But there is no magic pill. And I think people think, oh, well, if you start medication or if you go into um, a mental institution and you come out, then you should be brand new and okay and nothing should be wrong with you anymore. And that's not the way it works. You know, the human mind is complicated and mental illness is really complicated. And Again, we just don't have the language for this. We don't know how to deal with this, especially here in America where we we don't like to talk about things like this. We don't like things that are messy and complicated and and open-ended and may not have a resolution and may not have an answer and may not have a cure. And so it's really heartbreaking to watch Mabel come home and she's just trying to hold it together for everybody who's there, her parents are there, you know, different people, not too many people are there. He had invited a lot of his co-workers and stuff, but at the last minute he says, I don't think she can handle this. But I wonder, you know, maybe, maybe having kind people there might have helped her. I don't think she needed Nick's mom there, for instance, you know. And she goes to the children and she's hugging them and she's crying and she says, enough now. Like, I remember that phrase, her saying, enough now. Because you can tell she's just trying to hold it all in and, and, and look normal and act normal. And it makes you really cry to watch it, that she's been away from these children for six months. And she may be thinking, what has my absence done to them? You know, how is my, how are my issues affecting them? You know, it's that's another level of shame that people with mental illness feel, with especially for me with my depression is like, how does this affect my mom? How does this affect the people around me? What am I putting them through? How am I making them suffer? And it just adds to your shame. And it adds to that sense of you being a burden. You know, it really does when you think about me not being able to be quote unquote normal, me not being able to function the right way. What kind of burden am I becoming to them? And people can tell you till they're blue in the face that you're not a burden, that they love you, but you just don't believe it. And I, I imagine that maybe she was thinking, like, gosh, you know, I've been away six months. What has that done to them? 
everybody's eyes are on her and she's trying to stay calm throughout all of this but when she's with those children you can tell you can tell how emotional she is and um and finally nick gets really upset about how she's acting he says he he goes to her and he won't he says that he wants her to be herself he wants her to make her sounds he wants her to be who she is so she's really getting these i think she's getting conflicted messages too because on the one hand when she is herself or when she is kind of you know out there and and different she gets committed for it right but then she gets home and Nick's like, oh, be yourself. It, it must be really difficult to be Mabel. And of course, that's what this film is about. It's like, what is it like to be this person? That's what films are about. These particular kinds of films. Films about real people with real problems who are trying to deal with them. As Jenna said much earlier, you know. It's about what is it like to be another person? What is it like to be in another life? That's what films are trying to do. That's what the films that I love are trying to do. That's certainly what Cassavetti's films were trying to do. And so that's what we get. Yes, the film's two and a half hours long and it's grueling and it's brutal at times and it's heavy. But I think at the end of it, you get the sense of what it's like to be Mabel, to be this woman, you know? you do get a sense of her inner world and her inner life as much as you can get. People will always be unknowable. There will always be more inside of us than we can ever express, you know, and that's something that I myself struggle with of who I am inside and who I present myself to be to other people, even when it's this podcast where I feel like I'm being myself. But there's, it's like we're all icebergs. There's so much more of us than we can ever speak or or communicate to other people and so it's always this struggle I think to connect and to express who we really are because so much remains hidden and so much remains unspeakable about us I think but um she she's trying to hide it she's trying to hide the sound she's trying to hide the arm movements that she does and just her little ticks and the things that she does and Nick hates it. Nick hates this more sedate, subdued Mabel. You know, I think he loves her strangeness at at times. You know, I think he loves her, but he just doesn't always know how to handle all of her. And that's that's always the challenge, I think, of an unruly woman. You know, is that there are parts of these women that people love, and then there are other parts of them that people can't accept can't comprehend can't handle and want to discard or deny and it's like we have to take these women in all their fullness we have to take these women in all their complexity and all the things about them that are messy or unusual or unacceptable you know we have to take in all of them just as we have to accept all of that in our relationships with other people mabel really struggles with people it seems to me and you see this at the very end like you know nick tells her be yourself make your sounds you know and then she doesn't want the people to be there anymore she wants them to leave she just wants to be with nick again she's in love with nick and i think she feels safe with nick to a certain extent and um even though a lot has happened even though there's been violence and he has hit her and he has slapped her and there's been really 
um, unjustifiable things done, you know, and, and his behavior. She, I'm talking about her as a character. She loves this man and cares about this man. And I think she feels understood by him in a way that she does not feel with anybody else in her life. And I think she feels understood by her children because she asks them at one point, you know, what do you think of me? Do you think I'm weird? Do you think I'm, you know, I don't know the exact words that she uses. And they say, no, you're smart. You're beautiful. You're, you know, they love her and adore her. And I, Nick loves her too. And um, everybody else doesn't matter. Every, everybody else is just inconsequential. It's about this family unit and the the universe, the world they have created where there is love and there is acceptance you know, and I think that's really beautiful that I think we get, we get different representations in this film. We get, we see the cruelty that Mabel has to go through at times, even by the people who love her, even by, you know, uh, Nick and, and other people. But we also see the beauty, I think, and we do see the love. That's what life is. Life is a big, complicated mess, it is so complicated with moments of, of darkness and despair and and pain and then other moments of love and acceptance and tenderness. And um, she just seems to feel her safest with Nick and the kids. They are the ones who understand her and they accept her for all her, you know, unusualness and her wacko-ness and her craziness. They accept her. Um and these other people are just too much, you know, and, and what matters is that unit and that world that they've created, um, together, you know, and I love how at the end, and I don't think I called it the first time, but at the end, she starts to hum Swan Lake from that earlier scene and she goes and she dances on the couch and you can tell that she's, she's in her world again, but then violence is there too and and he slaps her and he threatens to kill her I mean it's just this crazy scene that happens where she goes back into that world again she sort of recedes into herself again and there's this explosion of violence by Nick and slaps her and he is always just on edge he is always about to erupt into violence and I don't think we can ignore or overlook Nick's violence in this film it's it really took me back it really bothered me and and worried me at times and um it really shocked me in a lot of ways the the way he lashed out at her and um but then things go back to normal again like there's so much within these scenes like one minute he's slapping her and then the next, they're putting the kids to bed. They've made up. They start cleaning up because everybody's left. And it's just them in the house, I think. Or most of the people have left. And it's like, everything's back to normal. And But at the same time, I think it captures the rhythms of life, right? I think Cassavetti's had a gift for that. That, yeah, sometimes you're in a, <laughs> you're in a screaming match with someone. And I've certainly been in them myself. And I've been in situations where you know, things were kind of not great. Um, and then you make up and everything's back to normal or you try to pretend like things are normal and everything's okay again. And so 
that's what happens in life and that's what happens in families for better or worse sometimes there can be these moments of explosion and lashing out and then a few moments later all of that has dissipated and life is really unpredictable in that way and messy and complicated in that way that often the people we're closest to the people we might love the most there can be conflict there and you can show a side of yourself to that person that maybe you would not show it to anybody else because you know that even if they see that worst part of you that they're still going to love you they're still going to forgive you and um but sometimes we don't always treat the people we love in the best way that we should and that makes us really flawed imperfect people right it doesn't it doesn't excuse any kind of violence or abuse um but we're not always at our best even with the people that we love but um the end of the film is is just so quiet in comparison to the rest of the film that's full of eruptions and and emotion and and all of these things and then at the end it's just them cleaning up after the party after people have left and it's just back to it being nick and and mabel and in a lot of ways this film is really just about the two of them that they are each other's world and each other's universe in a way that the kids are there and the kids are important but i would say the primary and central relationship is the one between mabel and nick and Cassavetti certainly gives us a relationship that is full of love, tenderness, but also um, really difficult, painful moments of violence and um, and miscommunication and misunderstanding. And Mabel is she seems to be so disconnected from the world and from other people, but she seems deeply connected to Nick and I think that's really an important thing and I think she probably is holding on to Nick in a lot of ways for dear life and um he's sort of all she has along with those kids because somebody like Mabel is going to be isolated and marginalized she's she's not the kind of person that's going to have tons of friends and be really accepted by society and so I think she creates her own little world within her family and that's how she's able to cope and to get through um but this film is really powerful I want to wrap up my review obviously because it's gone on for a little while I think this is a really powerful and important representation of mental illness I think there's maybe an argument there that it's a bit over the top at times I guess some people could say that it's a bit exaggerated at times. Um, I don't really see it that way. I see it more as a very raw and authentic look at someone who is struggling with her demons and just struggling with her mind and, and all of that. It's like the words are not coming right right now. Um, but I, I just see Mabel as someone who is so complex i don't think you pity her i i wouldn't say that i feel bad for maple that i pity her i feel sympathy and compassion for her but she is a multi-dimensional multi-faceted woman 
She is not just her noises and her arm movements. She is so much more than that. And we see that throughout the two and a half hours. We see a complex, rounded representation of a woman dealing with mental illness. A woman who doesn't have a lot of options and doesn't have a lot of support and who's trying to get through it the best way that she can. But this is also a woman who's very vivacious and beautiful and and giving and open and generous. So this is not a woman purely defined by a mental illness. This is a woman with all kinds of complexities to her and layers to her and we see those throughout the film and Jenna brings them out you know ultimately this was about Jenna's performance I was trying to talk about what she achieved with this role but it's very hard to put into words it's you know I was talking earlier about well what makes a performance great and I think sometimes it's mysterious I think it's not always something you can put into words it's something that you feel as you're watching the film and you feel that you have seen something that is authentic and real and and transcendent in a lot of ways you know I think of Falconetti and the passion of Joan of Arc um, to me that's a really great performance by a woman where she is transcendent as you know Joan of Arc uh, Falconetti is just extraordinary in that role I think of Meryl Streep and Sophie's Choice her performance I think is one of the greatest of all time in that film where she just completely inhabits this person and I absolutely would put Jenna Jenna's performance as Mabel Longetti right up there with all of the greatest performances it, there's just nothing like it on screen or on film and the way that she brought this woman to life and, and made her more than a caricature, made her more than a stereotype, made her more than just a joke or something for people to laugh at or think, oh, she's strange. I'm going to distance myself. I think a great actress, um, you know, obliterates the distance between the audience and the film, between the audience and the character that you can't say, well, I'm nothing like her. You know, I'm I'm not like Mabel Longetti. I think some of the most powerful performances, you can feel a connection to the character. You can see your shared humanity with this person. You do see parts of yourself in Mabel if you're someone like me who deals with mental illness or deals with depression and feels strange and, and feels uncomfortable in the world. That's what I that's the sense I got about Mabel is her discomfort in the world. The way she's agitated, the way she's twitching, the way she's doing these things. It's like she's just not comfortable in the world. And so many of us are not comfortable in the world. So many of us feel outside of it or separate from it. And I think a great actress I think what I'm looking for in performances is how they draw you into the character, how they obliterate that distance between you and the film and they bring you close and it's intimate and it's it's vivid and it is it's like something you could reach out your hand and touch that you could touch this person that this person is flesh and blood even though they are not. I mean, I constantly have to remind myself when I'm watching a film or something, this is not real these people are not real this story is not real it hasn't really happened 
I think some of the greatest films, the greatest performances almost make you question that line between reality and fantasy where you don't know where one ends and the other begins. There's that fusion, that union between them and you feel like you are watching something very real and um, tangible that even though it's on a screen it's real and it's flesh and blood and it's tangible in some way and that's not an easy feat it's not an easy thing to do but i think jenna absolutely does that and cassavetti's direction does that he does it through a lot of close-ups i noticed throughout the film there are like painful close-ups at times on peter falk and on jenna and in these very intense moments that's right right there on their faces and i like close-ups personally i sort of struggle with films that keep us at a distance and i'm not saying i don't value those films or don't think that they're important they absolutely are and directors make those decisions and they have reasons for why they keep the camera where they keep it but i happen to really love close-ups and you know the passion of joan of arc is a really great example of that where it's almost entirely composed of close-ups even sophie's choice has some really good close-ups and this film cassavetti's camera goes right into the flesh goes right into the skin of these people and um so much is conveyed through their faces especially jenna and she she dares to be ugly she dares to look insane she you know she doesn't care how her face looks and she makes these wild faces and does all these strange actions and she's not afraid it's a fearless performance it's a raw performance um and she has completely destroyed the screen in a way and completely um made it disappear where you feel like you're in the room with jenna you feel like you're right in the backyard when she's dancing to Swan Lake or you feel like you're in the room with Nick when Nick and Mabel are in bed together and there's no distance at all you're right there with them and you see their humanity and you you feel their story you feel their emotions with them and through that feeling maybe you discover something about yourself or maybe you see something about life you didn't see before maybe you feel more empathy for for people who are going through a situation like this so cassavetes is a fascinating director i haven't watched nearly enough of his films i definitely want to change that i want to watch more of them but this is really a defining film for him and it's a defining film for jenna and and her acting and I do think it's one of the greatest performances of all time and one of the greatest performances by a woman, you know, an amazing role that was created, you know, amazing um, female role. And it's not about being a strong female character. It's about being a real and authentic female character, a woman who struggles, a woman who has layers and nuances and dimensions, a woman who is unraveling at times and losing it at times and um how the people around her are trying to save her through the methods that they have available and they think that they're helping her and they think that they can save her and sometimes that can do more damage but we're all that's the hard part about when you become an adult and you get older 
I think you become a bit more forgiving. It depends on the situation. But you realize that we are all so fragile and flawed. And that we make really bad decisions sometimes. And we think that we're doing the right thing for someone. Or sometimes we don't know what the right thing is for another person. When they're hurting and when they're struggling. And we fail those people. And it's painful when we realize that we failed them. When we realize that... There was a moment when we could have made a different decision. We could have said something different and we didn't. And sometimes life is about forgiving yourself for your own weaknesses and your own flaws. That sometimes you cannot give a person what they need. And that's a tough thing to deal with. And I think that Nick is doing his best and Mabel's doing her best but sometimes they don't bring out the best in each other. And sometimes it doesn't show that they're doing their best. Sometimes it seems like they're at their worst. They're worse and, and they clash and they, um, they make mistakes. And, and it's brutal. It's brutal to watch that. It's brutal to be a witness to a marriage that is this volatile and this um, unstable at times and to witness a woman who is lost in the um, the cacophony of it and who is, I don't know what the word is, this woman who is really coming apart in many ways and you witness it and she can feel it happening and Nick can feel it happening and everybody can see it happening but there's nothing that you can do and there's a, a helplessness about it I think when you see someone you love going through that as Mabel is going through it I mean think about the three children they must not understand much of what's happening the chaos of their situation at times because sometimes Mabel is a bit chaotic and um, where's mom for six months? And what's going on with dad? And why is he slapping mom? I don't think Cassavetes lets any of these characters off the hook. That this is probably doing some damage to those children. And they are witnessing these things. And what will be the repercussions of that? Obviously, we don't know. But um, this is really a portrait of a marriage. A portrait of a woman um, a woman losing her mind at times, a woman disintegrating before our eyes, but a woman who is also, um, doing what she can to survive and trying to hold on to her husband and her family and her sanity. And she's certainly trying. And, and at times it's so painful to watch her desperately try to be quote-unquote normal to be what Nick wants her to be to to be the perfect wife you know and she just can't be that and but it's so painful to watch her try to stay calm and not be emotional and not make her sounds and not make the movements that she makes and she tries so hard you know but eventually they just sort of erupt out of her body she can't control it it's so beyond her control in in so many ways so oh god this character she's just she's fragile she's vulnerable 
but then she's so strong and powerful and and fights for herself right she fights against that doctor she fights you know when those people won't tell her the time she says hey what's wrong with you why are you treating me this way she's a woman who stands up for herself too Uh, she's unruly i think in the best possible way that at times she stands up for herself and believes that she deserves respect that hey why aren't you telling me the time you know she stands up to the doctor and doesn't want to be put into the hospital and she's affirming her right to have a say in her own care that's part of the problem right is that they are going to commit her but what about her agency and i guess people could argue you know but if if someone's losing their mind or if they're not in their right mind or or their sanity is um coming apart that can they really have a say in that but I think she should have a say. She's the one that has to go to the hospital. But unfortunately, it's the 1970s and men can probably just do whatever they want and commit their wives if they want to. I don't know what the protocol would be nowadays to commit a woman to a hospital. But we know in the past that this has happened, that women have been committed to mental hospitals without their consent and their agency has been taken away. And that is what happens to Mabel to some extent in this, that she does not want to go to the hospital and she's pretty much forced to. But this is a strong woman. This is a woman that fights and resists and stands up for herself too. So again, this is not um, this is not a one-dimensional portrait. This is not a woman who's um, passive in in any way i don't think even if she was that's okay you know you think of somebody like barbara loden's wanda where that character is painfully passive and somebody that i also relate to in that passivity in that lack of participation that lack of action the way that she just sort of folds into herself you know i certainly relate to that um I sometimes wish I was more like Mabel. I wish I was this more um, gregarious, um, fierce person who, you know, outspoken and loud. And I sort of love that about Mabel. I love that she's just, (laughs) she doesn't care. She just says what she wants to say and does what she wants to do and dances in the backyard and who cares, right? I love that about her. There's something very vivacious, I think, about her in that way. But it comes with consequences. You know, when you are a woman that doesn't fit into these boxes and doesn't conform and doesn't act the way people want you to act, there are serious consequences to it. And, um, yeah, but this is just a, a stunning character that um i i i don't know if i've seen another character like this on film um i've seen it in a woman under the influence i cannot call to mind any i'm sure they're out there somewhere i just haven't seen them yet but that's why i started to conceptualize this idea of like a cinema of the unruly woman what that would look like and i just think it's a framework or it's just an idea to maybe think about of who are the who are these women who are portrayed as unruly what can those representations show us 
Um, I certainly identify with quite a few of those women, <laughs> women who just don't fit into those boxes and don't conform to gender norms and things like that, and who sort of deviate from these ideas of what it means to be a woman and, and from these ideals of femininity, right? So to me, these are sort of inherently feminist characters at times. These are women who are excessive and sort of flow outside the bounds and they can't be um, they can't be categorized, they can't be tamed, they can't be explained easily either, that these are mysterious women and unknowable women and um, but important representations and more authentic representations of women. I don't I don't need the strong female characters, you know. I'm not a strong woman. I would not categorize myself that way. I'm someone who's sort of crawling and struggling and trying to cope and trying to survive and and just doing the best that I can. But I love I love a character like Mabel who's messy and flawed and complicated and there's so much there. There's so much to look at, there's so much to think about, there's so much to talk about. So it's a really important portrayal of a woman and of a woman dealing with mental illness. And um, yeah, I, I love Mabel. And um, at times she makes me cry. At times she makes me laugh. At times she baffles me. Um, but she's she's human and she's real and she's alive. And, and even though it's a movie, she's just a character that... I love and that I really hold dear. So I hope that I've done some justice to this film. I've gone on long enough. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now. <laughs>